welcome to this month's look at the nursing headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. Thank you so much. I'm Sarah Zanton, the Patricia M. Davidson Health Equity and Social Justice Endowed Professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. And congratulations on that role. So tell me just a little bit of background because of course everybody's missing Trish. Right. It's a great story, which is that Trish worked on getting an endowed chair and the donor, who's fantastic, Susan Epstein, did not want the chair named after her. And Trish did not want it named after her. <laughs> so we came up with the middle ground of calling it the Health Equity and Social Justice Endowed Professor, but the university needs it to be named after someone. And so we all agreed that once Trish left, it would be the Patricia M. Davidson Health Equity and Social Justice Endowed Professor. And so the one good thing about her leaving is I get to have her name always as part of my title. No, oh, that's so wonderful. So you've got three very distinct and stellar areas that you've focused on in your career. So why don't we start with the oldest one first? Having known you and been blessed to know you for a while, I'm going to guess that that's the issue about elders and aging in place and just the substantive body of research that you've really produced in that area. Thank you. I'm a nurse practitioner and I've done house calls with older adults and really my eyes were open from that of people's environment and what people need to be able to age comfortably and with meaning and dignity at home. And so we developed a program called Capable that we adapted from a program called ABLE that provides nursing, occupational therapy, and a handyman or handy worker in people's homes. We developed it at Johns Hopkins. It's now at 35 places in 18 states. People in Congress are looking at writing legislation to scale it through Medicare. And it was just featured yesterday in the new National Academy of Sciences report on the future of nursing. We continually hear success stories where people get to go to church when they hadn't been to church in two years, or that they get to take a bath and they haven't done that, or the things that seem little that are actually lead to big changes in people's experience of their lives. This, of course, is particularly germane right now, since we're still really on the, I hope, I'm going to guess, go out on a limb here, on the tail end of the pandemic. Lots and lots of elders at home, of course. We've even seen increased provision of hospital at home. Right. I think the pandemic underscores not just health disparities, but also from an infection point of view and a meaning and life point of view, most older adults want to be able to age at home. Help me to understand how the program that you've developed could intersect with the need to keep older adults socially connected also. That's a great question. I'll just give you an example because maybe that's easier. I'm thinking of a gentleman who is on dialysis. He spends four hours, three days at a time, hooked up to a machine that's not at his home. When we first came to him, he had a completely flat affect. He didn't smile, no facial expression. He was in a lot of pain. He was a Vietnam veteran and had been exposed to all kinds of toxic things there just pretty much only went to dialysis and came home. The one thing that he could focus on that gave him pleasure was to sit out back and listen to the birds, but he couldn't get himself out back. He got around in a wheelchair in the home and he couldn't get over the threshold. So his grandson would have to pick him up and pick up his wheelchair for him to do that. So his goals in working with us were to be able to shave standing up, to be in less pain, and to be able to get outside by himself to listen to the birds. After working through these goals and with the occupational therapist and the nurse and putting grab bars around his sink, for example, and grab bars by the back door and strengthening his legs, he could shave standing up, which was a big dignity factor for him. He could get outside himself 
he started to be more involved in the community. He was going out for other reasons. He was sitting on his front stoop also. And we did not address depression because he did not identify it, but his face, he now had facial expression and his eyes twinkled. What a lovely story. So enlightening and so meaningful. Let's move on. Let's go on to your next leg of your three-legged stool with regard to your efforts professionally. Another stream of research that we've been working on is financial strain and health, meaning do people have enough money to pay their bills and how that affects their health? We found that even controlling for income and disease, age, and other things that you think would be relevant, especially income, that women who did not have enough money to pay their bills were 57% more likely to die in the next five years than people who did, even at the same income. Introducing new income into someone's life in the form of food stamps or SNAP can decrease nursing home utilization and hospital admission. And the great thing about focusing on financial strain rather than just income is it's about this balance between what you need and what you have. And so that means you can intervene on either side. If you decrease someone's costs, like by insulating their home, for example, or maybe getting them on generic medications instead of for some reason they ended up on the high cost ones, then they might have less financial strain. And similarly, if you add new income, such as through food stamps, or if you have a renter in your house or something, you can change the financial strain. So it's very policy relevant in terms of both of those sides about decreasing people's expenses, maybe increasing their access to resources. Financial strain is just an excellent target to work on in terms of improving people's health. And of course, we've been seeing lots and lots of stories about financial strain, once again, to bring this entirely to today relative to even testing for COVID. Right. My dear colleague, Laura Samuel at the School of Nursing has been doing really interesting research looking at inflammatory biomarkers in people's blood relating to when they get their social security check in the month. For people who are not financially strained, it doesn't really matter. It just hits their bank account. You know, you're not really thinking about it. But for people who are, they actually are healthier blood-wise soon after they get their check in their bank account than prior. And of course, then that inflammatory state makes us more susceptible to disease. Exactly. Very important. And then finally, now you've just gotten another whole new area that you're going to pursue. Yeah. We just got a big new grant about measuring structural racial discrimination and structural resilience. Most of the history of looking at the effect of racial discrimination on health has to do with everyday interpersonal racial discrimination, which clearly creates a toll on people, people who experience more racial discrimination of higher blood pressure, they're more likely to get cancer, they're more likely to get all kinds of health outcomes that as a society, it's really important to help people prevent. But those measures, which are things like, were you treated with disrespect or were you followed in a shop by a shopkeeper? Those measures don't measure things like, did you grow up in a redlined neighborhood or wealth factors or some of the more structural measures that more and more people are understanding are deeply rooted and related to people's opportunities and their health. We, with NIH support, we are developing a measure across nine different domains of people's life experience. For example, the employment domain, the environment in terms of like 
toxic things on lead, income, credit, and wealth, media and marketing, and then looking across people's life course with all those domains. For example, the education funding, where they grew up, employment factors, and people have conceptualized about structural discrimination in health, and people have done some measurement, but this will be the first time of trying to get all those contexts across the life course for individual people, and then getting that measure into large population-based studies so that people, their experience of it will just be answering about where they were born and where they lived at different points. But then on the back end, we're matching lots and lots of data points, even to like the number of lynchings in the county where they grew up and matching those to the person so that someone might have an 80 on their structural discrimination experience and someone else might have a 60 and someone else might have a 45. And then you can match that to all different kinds of health outcomes like dementia or cancer or heart disease. So that's it in a nutshell. Yikes, this sounds like a really ginormous <laughs> that's going to be a part of this. Ginormous is definitely the technical term for what we are trying. And similarly, with structural resilience, we're taking a step back because in the resilience world, it's usually measured individually also. So are you a good coper? Are you religious? And then sometimes to the family, like did you have two parents, for example, or two people who loved you a lot growing up? And there's very little about community resilience, family resilience, biological resilience, all kind of put together, even though we know that those are all related. So, so for example, like when Hurricane Katrina happened, more people died because of the way the community was set up and how segregated it was and resources. And those individuals biologically died, but it was partly because of aspects about the community. So we are working on a measure of structural resilience that includes community and family and individual and biological factors. Sounds like this could end up being extremely important in predicting what an individual's outcome would be and also on a policy level. Exactly. And as part of that grant, we're developing kind of a library of policy options as well, because I'm a person of action. <laughs> so I was a lobbyist before I was a nurse, and I don't want to just develop measures that sit on shelves. To bring this whole thing full circle to a lot of the nursing students at Johns Hopkins who might be listening to this podcast, what would you say about your really very broad-based career? I would say to just move forward each time doing the next right thing. It will take you places you hadn't thought of. And when I was first in nursing school, I went into it to do reproductive health and I came out really interested in aging. You never know what will happen next, but the important thing is to do what interests you and what you feel passion for and to work with strong, ethical, fun people. On that lovely note, that's a look at this month's nursing headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Sarah Zinn. Thanks so much for having me.